Luke chapter 9, verses 43 through 48 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 867. If you are using a church Bible, page 867. Before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, as we come to your word, uh, would you please show to us wonderful things in it? Would you bring us near to you? Uh, by the Holy Spirit, would you make uh, this passage effective in each of our hearts? We know that only you can do that. Would you please show to us uh, ourselves even so that you might show to us yourself in Jesus Christ, that more and more... He might be everything to us. Convince us, God, of your love for us, that we might trust you uh, with the whole of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This passage before us is a striking uh, passage of human pride. And we come to a text which shows us a strange phenomenon that people can be so near to Jesus and yet still somehow be so full of themselves. That there can be this very close proximity to the person of Christ, and yet a severe lack of faith in him at the same time, even in the ones who have left all to follow him. Because there's this ability to see him and hear him and study him even, and yet be captivated instead by our own reflections in the mirror, rather than to be captivated by the surpassing glory of the Son of God. And yet we also see and therefore understand to a much greater degree the remarkable beauty and love and patience and grace of our Savior in knowing all of this about us and still giving himself wholly for his people anyway. In the last passage, the disciples of Jesus had come face to face with their own inadequacies and they'd experienced a failure within their ministry. That when encountering the only child of a devastated father, because the son is constantly being oppressed by a violent, destructive spirit, the disciples could not cast it out. They could not make the situation better. And even more so, when these disciples get near to the boy to try to help, the demon only seems to get more violent. Jesus has to intervene to heal the boy because the disciples were impotent to do so. And the disciples were impotent to do so because they lacked faith. And this is Jesus' primary concern for them and his concern for us as well, our faith, our trust, our belief in him, because this continues to be their ongoing issue perhaps more than anything else. Now, it's not because being near to Jesus, they lacked opportunity for faith. The disciples had seen lepers healed, paralytics walk, demons cast out, storms stilled, food multiplied to feed thousands. They had witnessed fish jumping into their own fishing nets, so much so that the nets began to break and the boats began to sink. Some of these expressions of Jesus' authority have been utterly mind-blowing. And so it's not as if they lacked opportunity for all of their faith to be put into Jesus and to trust in everything that he says and teaches. Three of these disciples had just seen Jesus in bright glory with Moses and Elijah. The entirety of God's word, law and prophets, somehow points to and finds their culmination in this person, Jesus. He is everything. The disciples, they had seen things we had never seen and had witnessed things that we would long to witness, and yet it is that there can still be this lack of faith in Jesus and a lack of faith in his word that we would rather believe more in our ways than in his. 
Because it's strangely possible, again, for one to be very near to Jesus and yet to still be so full of himself or herself. This is what is called pride, to somehow desire our plans and purposes rather than to submitting to his. What we have here in our text this morning is what Jesus' followers in each and every age will inevitably struggle with, uh, pride and, and self-importance and self-centeredness and self-advancement, vanity. Even when Jesus has explicitly called each and every one of us to a life of self-denial and cross-bearing, and to put all of our eggs, so to speak, into a future glory which is coming and has not yet been revealed. We have this phenomenon of human pride in the presence of Christ's glory, and I think we can learn quite a bit about ourselves and about the gentle love of Jesus as well in these verses. We begin in verse 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all still marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. You know, when we're not in line with Jesus, we will often marvel at the wrong things in disproportionate amount. Human pride can impact our ability to process that which is right in front of us, and then it becomes easy to be enamored with the wrong things and absent-minded about the more important things. We have in these verses people marveling at showy miracles and willingly uninterested in the sufferings of Jesus. The crowd and the disciples are astonished here at the majesty of God, and there's nothing wrong with that. A young child with destructive seizures, foaming at the mouth, crying out to the point where his dad can't ever leave him alone, is healed in an instant when Jesus arrives on the scene, and people marvel because they know this child, and they know his family as hopelessly tragic cases until Jesus reveals his majesty and shows forth his authority over the supernatural. And this latest miracle is really just a cherry on the top of a mountain of miracles which Jesus has been demonstrating, his authority over all things in creation. Verse 43 tells us, they were all, present tense, marveling at everything he was doing. This is everything. This is all the miracles that all the people had seen with their own eyes and heard with their own ears, the worst illnesses healed, Natural disaster stopped, matter multiplied, much being created from little, astonished and still marveling, describes this crowd of people and his disciples whose minds are fantasizing about all the possibilities of this kind of power and what that can do for us. And I remember uh, buying lottery tickets in college when the jackpot was huge, and the line would be a lot longer when the jackpot was huge to buy those tickets. I don't recommend the lottery, nor do I endorse it, but while waiting in line at the age of 20, unsure about what I would even major in, I was fantasizing about how this jackpot could change my life. And while in line, I was already spending the money <laughs> in my daydreams and imagining my potential future if I were to win, marveling at the possibilities of what this kind of buying power could do for me. And this is usually how uh, selfish people think when they're around power or the potential of it. What can that do for me? But Jesus here, he doesn't want the crowds and especially his followers to marvel like that. He doesn't want them to fantasize about how this kind of power can upgrade their living. Snap out of it is what Jesus is saying here because this is not what I have ultimately come to do. These mighty acts are not the main glory. 
nor are they the ultimate majesty of who it is that I am. Now, it is right and proper to be captivated by the undeniable authority and the ultimate majesty of the Son of God expressed in these miraculous ways. There's nothing wrong with that. We're supposed to stand in a kind of awe, but all of that is nothing in comparison to what Jesus will ultimately do for his people, which is what he has already told his followers about 20 verses earlier in 22 of the same chapter. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The greatest thing that Jesus accomplishes in his first coming is not the working of miracles. The greatest thing about Jesus in his first coming is found in his cross and in his resurrection. And Jesus is bringing his followers back to the very main thing, that the Son of God has come to suffer and to die for the sins of his people. And the Christ has come to defeat death and break that power of sin in his resurrection. The majestic Messiah is not here to be our genie in a bottle. This Christ is here to save his people from their sins. That is the main thing. And this is the main glory of Jesus' coming, Emmanuel, God with us. And this remains of such primary importance that in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, the heavenly scene depicted there shows those singing about worthy is a Christ who was slain and by his blood ransomed a people for God. No one is singing there about 5,000 people being fed. No one's talking about paralytics walking. And I think we'll understand more then why no one is singing about leprosy being healed and yada, 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 because there it will be that we realize the highest majesty and glory of his saving power will be put into its proper perspective as we marvel at a crucified, risen, ascended, saving, powerful Christ. And the phrase which Jesus uses here to bring them back to this very main thing is to let these words sink into your ears, which signals for us again the most important thing within this passage and signals for us also at the same time this strange ability of ours to hear and yet not hear. Jesus is trying to wake these daydreamers up that the plan of salvation is getting closer and closer. The first step is explicitly near. The time is knocking at the door. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they really need to understand this and be prepared for this. You know, my third son, Trent, he's a seven-year-old boy, uh, he runs through screen doors, spills his drinks, trip crumbles all over the couch, cup lying on the side, uh, normal seven-year-old boy stuff. And, and I'll try and teach him the way you don't spill is by putting the chips right here and put your cup right here on this little table next to you when you watch TV. And as I'm talking, he knows the drill. He turns his head towards me and he nods with every one of my words with emphasis, but his eyes betray him because they're watching the TV behind me. I will literally snap my fingers. You got to listen up and say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because he doesn't give a rip about what I'm saying. As much as he's captivated by the screen in front of him. And these disciples, likewise, in their selfish pride, are somehow so close to Jesus. And they can hear every single one of his words coming out of his mouth. And yet they don't give a rip about Jesus' sufferings or what he's trying to say here. They are instead marveling at all the possibilities that Jesus' undeniable power can be used for all of life's upgrades and have zero interest in the coming sufferings of Jesus, no matter how much he snaps his fingers to get their attention. 
no matter how many times he emphasized that these things have to sink into your ears because the disciples' main issue is not, I gotta get better at casting out demons so I don't fail again like I did with that little boy. No, the disciples, their main issue is that somehow being this close to Jesus, they're still so far away from him. And witnessing the glory of God in Christ, they can still somehow be more full of themselves than they are of him. They lack faith in the one who has done all to prove himself worthy of it. Jesus' sufferings are not a big deal to us when we have a high view of ourselves. When we do have a more accurate view of ourselves as a sinful people in need of grace and mercy, then Jesus' sufferings on our behalf become more and more everything to us. That by his stripes we're healed. At his cross where the righteous dies for the unrighteous, his resurrection which proves his sacrifice accepted and sin defeated and death no longer reigns. These mean everything to us when we have a more accurate and lowly view of ourselves but all of this becomes less of a big deal to us when we think that somehow God giving me a promotion at work is what really captivates my heart or giving me that spouse, the family I dreamed of getting me into this school, giving me a newer car are the objects of our fantasies and then it becomes that his healing touch is the bigger deal. His ability to make much out of little is more essential to me. His miracles more important and intoxicating for what this all could mean for me in the next 20 years. And the majesty of that cross gets lower and lower, and then we have a higher and higher view of ourselves in pride, and it is in these very moments that the cross can almost mean nothing. I've already heard it before. Sometimes we see churches following the same path, that this feature or this feeding ministry or this social justice is what really makes us who we are. And the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, for I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified are largely ignored. Jesus' ultimate majesty is displayed in his humble sufferings and treacherous cross to ransom a sinful people. And that can so easily slip to the outer fringes of what we want Jesus to do for us when our pride gets more and more inflated. And then we can be again near to Christ and full of ourselves and so misunderstand his heart for us in our true state. Now, why do these disciples not understand the saying? I think in part, it is because they don't want to understand the saying. Jesus' plan here, his word, his purposes, it doesn't really fit into my hopes and aspirations and ambitions. I think that's part of it. But I also think, and we are alerted to this in verse 45, and they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so they might not perceive it. And they have a part in their misunderstanding, but God has a part as well. I, I think there's this patience Jesus is exhibiting here, uh, even in his intensity, that he's not actually giving them everything to chew on since they can't even swallow a little bit of it. He stops short. I mean, the disciples' world is about to be wrecked. All of their expectations are not going to be met. The one they left everything to follow, family, friends, career, everything, the one full of promise is gonna die the most miserable and public death the first century had to offer. They weren't ready for it. And God in his patience is trying to prepare them little bit by little bit. And I forgot who I heard this from. I once had a preacher talk about this, our own growing ability to handle bigger and bigger truths. His child had asked some very difficult questions about life and his father says, you know what, why don't you bring me my toolbox and I'll explain these things to you and his son goes to the toolbox and tries to lift it up, but it was too heavy. 
He kept trying and trying, and he just couldn't do it until he said, Dad, I can't carry it. It's too much for me. And his father said to him, some of these things that you're asking about, you can't carry yet either. They're too heavy for you in this moment. But when you get a little bit stronger, then you can carry the things you need to be capable of carrying, and you can handle the answers that you need to know for living. I think that's a little bit of what's happening here. The disciples have had their head turned towards Jesus and are nodding, but their eyes and their fantasies are totally focused on something else, and they can't possibly, in this weak state, handle the plan and purposes of God in this very moment. But they will. God's preparing them to handle it, and over time, and ever so patiently, he does this, and yet we see God's kindness in this very patience. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. If you can't even carry that part, how are you going to bear the weight of the coming cross? There's so much of you, your ambitions and dreams that still need to die, so much of your pride that still needs to be humbled, so many of your goals that still need to be redirected. And these disciples would, in the coming years, have the God-given strength to bear their own cross in the same fashion as their Savior. But in this very moment, we see this very tender care and long patience of a very loving Christ. Keep in mind, Jesus at this moment is being marveled at. People are jaws open, eyes googly at what he's doing. And Jesus could have easily basked in that popularity and enjoyed that moment of high and fickle praise, taking in all of the applause and listening people rave about his mighty works. He could have let that go to his head, but all of that doesn't move the needle for Jesus at all. Because out of his great love for his people, even the dense ones and even the prideful ones who just don't seem to get it right away, Jesus shows to us his loving resolve. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Because nothing distracts our Savior from his mission to save his people. Not their shortcomings, not the ooing and aahing of the people. Nothing distracts him from his mission to save his people. This is love, brothers and sisters. And so we have, again, this phenomenon of human pride that can impact our ability to process that which is right in front of us and how easy it is to become enamored with the wrong things and absent-minded about the more important things to take our eyes off of the cross of Christ and his heart for his people and miss the entire point of his ministry to us. Verse 46, we continue, and we see this pride even more and more clearly. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest, But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. God's economy is so much different than the world's. And his definition of greatness is diametrically opposed to the world's definition of it. Greatness in God's eyes is measured not in stature or position or power or looks or finances or skill or seats of honor or accolades or titles in front of or in the rear of our names. Greatness instead is measured in who willingly becomes the least and the lowest, which takes quite a bit of genuine faith to actually believe this is true. A lot of people can claim Jesus with their lips, But it is the ones who become least, 
who really know Jesus in their hearts. Now, the timing of these verses couldn't be any more incriminating. Jesus just emphasized his own coming sufferings. Let these words sink into your ears. I'm going to suffer. And it's almost as if Jesus, before he ends his sentence, his disciples are fighting each other for who is ranked higher than the other one. Which one of us is great? Who says that in the presence of the Son of God in the flesh? But as obviously childish his disciples are acting, what is obvious in them is meant to bring out what can so often be less obvious in us. Whether we call that pride, ambition, self-promotion, or put into more positive tones like maximizing your potential or seizing afforded opportunities, the Bible is very clear that nothing is more damaging to us and to the people around us than our selfish pride and our me-centered egos. And this is the effect of sin within the heart. Listen to what John MacArthur writes about pride in this context. If you want to get in touch with what it means to be fallen, it means to be self-centered, self-love, self-satisfaction, self-exaltation, self-fulfillment. Those are the passions of a fallen heart. Now, in our world, they are considered virtues because we live in an upside-down world. But the reality is that all expressions of sin flow out of dominant pride in the human heart. Pride, then, is the core corruption. Self-worship is what real fallenness is all about. Every other sin rises out of the soil of pride. Everything grows in the ground of pride. Pride is the damning sin that produces rebellion against God. Pride seeks to dethrone God. It seeks to un-God God. It seeks to strike a fatal blow at his sovereignty and his majesty and to replace God with self. Pride grips our hearts, and that's why it's so hard to believe. It's why it's so hard to be saved. It's why it's so hard to repent because pride is dominant. And this is what we're seeing in the set of verses, the pride that argues for self-aggrandizement, that's not satisfied with being close to Jesus, but we must be better than the person and this person and this person right here. It's a force that breaks apart friendships. It's a power that kills marriages, that sets parents against their children and children against mom and dad. It's what destroys many churches and what kills so many fellowships that the people who need to be together the most in this great commission era are instead at each other's throats because we think I'm better than the next one. It's pride that explains why we can so often come face to face with the glory of God in God's love at, shown at the cross and yet be more motivated somehow by improving where we rank in this very short and momentary life. What is obvious in these disciples, in this very incriminating timing of these comments, is supposed to unearth what is more subtle in us. We may not do it so obviously, but we have to ask ourselves, is this strain within? But Jesus, again, in his patience and kindness, he didn't yell at his disciples. He didn't condemn them and say, what is wrong with you guys? But Jesus, instead, he takes a child and brings the child right next to himself. And the visual is powerful that somehow the one closest to him at this moment is this little one who is unassuming, unambitious, and not taking himself that seriously. And there's texts like this in Luke 18, 17 that tell us to be childlike in this kind of simplicity of faith. But when he does this, that's not his primary emphasis. He's not saying here, be like this child. He's saying you should receive people who are like this child. Serve these ones. How you treat people like you treat this little boy, tells you how you have dealt with the pride within your own heart. 
And that's because this child represents the lowest rank of society. The one without rights in the first century, the one who was needy and dependent and vulnerable and didn't provide any kind of contribution or accomplish any kind of notable achievement. Children in the first century were socially insignificant. They just take and take. They rarely give and give. A lot of children were abandoned or sold into slavery. Fancy scribes and rabbis didn't take care of little children because they were above that. They had more important people and more important matters for them to deal with. They gained nothing for themselves by being and serving little children because their MO has always been to minister to someone significant because that makes me significant. If I minister to the insignificant, that would make me insignificant. And we see the same thing today. Biggest church, I must be the biggest. Greatest company, I must be the greatest. This is the arrogance of human life. That people love to grab the mic, but no one wants to change a diaper or wash the dishes. And therefore, the common practice of prideful people is to only receive and help those who can help you back. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. We often serve those whom we seek to gain from. <clears throat> you can't do that with a little kid. Try and talk to a little kid for about five minutes. They're not going to ask you how your day was. You only give. You never get. But to the one who can receive this child in Jesus' name is the one who can receive Jesus himself. Shows this priority of humility. The one who receives Jesus is the one who receives God the Father who sent him. Humility is our starting point to bringing Jesus near to us and for us being close to God himself. And this shows to us if our eyes have truly taken in the glory of Christ's sufferings, if we really, really get it. Let me read to you from the book of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. It says there, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That phrase is key. This mindset is ours in Christ Jesus. You don't act humble to get into heaven. You have Christ. This is why you're humble. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped or seized, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see that descending staircase. Therefore God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." The greatness of Jesus Christ is seen in the lowliness of his suffering for a sinful race of people like you and me. The majesty of the Son of God is witnessed in him looking out for our interests, namely salvation, and not looking out for his own, even though he deserves everything. He humbles himself to the point where he willingly dies upon a cross. He lays aside his right is right not to die because he is God himself. I mean, in this way, and this sounds blasphemous because of how much Jesus condescends, in this way, Jesus actually considers our interests above his own. I'm going to put you all first. I'm going to die in your place. I'm going to die a sin itself. I'm going to take the wrath that's due to you. I'm going to bear that on my back. 
But it is therefore that Jesus is also exalted by the Father in the same breath as his condescending humility, which redefines greatness for us. And it is therefore that the followers of Jesus who understand the glory of the cross and the majesty of his sufferings will find their greatest ambition in being like their Savior and glorifying him in their bodies, whether by life or by death, that as a people and as a church, we welcome the lowest and serve the have-nots, because this is exactly how Christ has welcomed each of us when we had nothing. And it is this very humble heart which has proven itself to have received both Christ and the Father who sent him. Glorifying our Lord and Savior in our humble service to the ones we gain nothing in return is what it means to be great in God's economy, even if it means we are the lowest in the world. This is perhaps the test of our faith more than anything else is. Can you serve the ones who you think are below you? Can you serve and receive your husband or wife? You live with them long enough, you think they're below you. Can you minister to your children with patience? Talk to your coworkers with kindness, not just the bosses, your in-laws, the people within your church family, the people who aren't on our side, or the people who are. Sometimes they're more difficult to serve than the ones who aren't. Can you give yourself and expect nothing in return because true faith in Jesus finds expression in our contentment to be low and to serve. When we listen to these words, we're going to find it harder and harder to lie to ourselves about where we're really at. We can recite verses all day long. We can sing songs from memory and talk theology and even boast about how much we know and how spiritual we really are. But if we can't stoop down to serve the lowly, then perhaps it is that we don't really know the gospel now, do we? Because again, there's this strange phenomenon that sometimes we can be so close to Christ and still so full of ourselves, arguing with each other, passive-aggressively ranking each other, just trying to climb up these standings preoccupied with and nodding mm-hmm, mm-hmm at the word of God without ever letting it sink into our ears that with the cross of Christ held out before us, we can still somehow have a high view of ourselves and a low view of the greatness of Jesus. Jesus' kingdom is made up of those who are more enamored with Jesus' greatness than our own, and therefore humble ourselves and serve those who are considered the least. This kind of life does not make any kind of sense unless the gospel is really true, and unless you actually believe it. You can't live like this unless you truly behold the glory of Jesus in his cross. You can't serve people like this unless you let his words sink deeply into your ears and into your hearts. You can only be great when the glory of Christ's suffering captivates you more than self-improvement. And when we don't find ourselves living like this, it's likely because we've taken our eyes off of Jesus himself. If we really understand the gospel, then our view of greatness will be completely flipped upside down. Look to Christ, brothers and sisters. Look to him with all your might and be captivated by his glory. Now, if you're new here or newer here, this is the premise of the gospel. We don't earn our way to heaven by good works, but we admit we can't earn it. We're too low. We don't deserve it. We deserve hell instead. The only way I will ever get there, this is humility beginning, the only way I will ever know God is if he literally brings himself to me and does all the work for me. 
And this is why the gospel is such good news. It's a message of free grace for the undeserving, which makes his love shine all the more brightly. Now, before we close, I just want to make one quick side note. Serving the least is one of the reasons why Christians are so involved with fighting against abortion. If there's any in society that is helpless and can contribute nothing, it's those who are in the womb and represent the lowest rung, where their lives are literally seen as worthless if it impedes the lifestyle of his or her parents and especially mom. This is not about politics. This is about defending the helpless as an expression of Christ defending us. And while we're thrilled with what is happening at the national level, we don't gloat, but more and more we must try and be ready to serve those who nobody else seems to want to. It's one of the best expressions of the gospel in our day and age. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, we know how easy it is to listen and to not get it. Lord, you have to put this into our hearts. Uh, we're, too, we're too prideful to, to receive your word. Humble us by your Holy Spirit. Show us the beauty of Jesus Christ. Help us to love the cross and to love those who can give us nothing in return. Help us to live and be like your son Jesus so that people might see his beauty and come to know you who have sent them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.